Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Ternaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. This past week, I attended a reception on UCLA's beautiful campus and happily and unexpectedly met one of our long-standing listeners. He noted that I'd been warning of serious declines in the U.S. economy over the past year or two and asked me to highlight some of my most serious concerns based on where we are now in March of 2023. He recalled my warnings in 2021 of an upcoming severe sell-off in stocks and bonds. And unfortunately for all of us, we saw that expectation materialize during 2022. Unlike a paid financial newsletter, and there are many of these, with advice pretty much all over the map, we at UCLA Extension have an overriding objective. We want to better prepare you for making your career and investment plans based on knowledge you, yourself, can capture and process. The less we rely on skewed government and political news releases, and the more we rely on knowing what to look at ourselves, the better we can be in charge of our own personal and professional futures. Our focus is to help you and overall advance the knowledge of how we develop likely expectations as no one person is a reliable fortune teller and you have your own specific professional investment goals. Let's start with what actually happened in 2022 with respect to financial markets and the economy. First off, we did have a crash in both the U.S. stock market and the bond market. This pairing almost never happens but it did happen, building negative momentum as 2022 progressed. The highly unusual pairing, which we warned about in 2021, subsequently dropped the S&P 500 stock index by 20% from January to December. Bond prices fared even worse. Bonds dropped over 30% in price from January 22 through December. To me, that qualifies as a market crash. Last year, in both the stock and bond markets, most of the crash in the stock and bond markets occurred in the first half of the year. However, the bond market downtrend continued pretty much throughout the whole year. Our listeners may recall that throughout last year, we pointed out in our podcasts that the stock market rise in recent years was heavily weighted by only a handful of companies. We mentioned that the FANG stocks, Facebook or Meta, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, plus Microsoft, accounted for about 25% of the entire Standard & Poor's 500 index, thereby almost single-handedly that group pulling the index to higher and higher levels. The same behavior was true years ago in the 2000-2001 high-tech boom and bust. Actually, Microsoft is one of the top 10 tech stocks in both those periods, 2000-2001 and last year, as well as recent years. Microsoft has been one of the top 10 tech stocks in both the major booms and busts we've experienced in the past 20 plus years. But contrary to the behavior of the other large tech companies, Microsoft so far is holding on to most of its gains. In the crash of 2022, Google dropped 40%, Meta dropped 60%, Tesla dropped 
more than 60%. NVIDIA, which I had not mentioned, dropped 50%. And even Moderna in the healthcare sector dropped 30%. Over the past couple of months, several of the largest companies, such as Tesla, bounced up significantly. So is the pain over? In my opinion, the pain is just starting. And the crash of 2022 will soon continue into the crash of 2023. Strong statement? Yes. For one reason, bear market rallies in a down market, and we've seen a bear market rally in the past couple of months. These bear market rallies are known to be strong fakeouts. We all know prices every day in the financial markets move up and down, almost never in a straight line for very long. These moves prey on our emotions as we tend to look for meaning in every move. My suggestion, pull back and look at the longer term trends. Don't focus on the daily, weekly, or even often on the monthly trends. Here are some of the trends that I look at, and there are quite a few, but I try to keep up to speed on these. First of all, the vast majority of Americans are struggling to keep up with inflation. Official inflation has been running between a low of 5.5% and a high of almost 9% for well over a year. Wages and salaries have only increased 3 to 4%, leaving a significant drop in purchasing power for almost everyone. Secondly, the savings rate is again at a record low, lower than the Great Recession of 2008-2009. Number three, U.S. consumer confidence unexpectedly fell for the second straight month in February as Americans' outlook on the economy tumbled further, showing how persistent inflation is weighing on shoppers amid looming inflation fears. And I'm going to go into a little bit more detail on this one. The conference board's latest consumer confidence index released about a week ago declined to 102.9, slipping from 106.0 in January, which itself was revised lower in January. Economists polled by Refinitiv had expected February's index actually to tick up to 108.5. So they were wrong in the direction and wrong in the magnitude. Additionally, credit card debt is at a record high, and auto loan defaults are a national issue for banks and specialist auto dealers. In fact, Americans are further behind on car payments than in 2009. After a lengthy period in which nothing seemed to happen, suddenly the dominoes are starting to fall. And as Bloomberg reports, used car retailer and subprime auto loan lender American Car Center told employees in recent days that particular business, their employer, is closing its doors. Just one day after the company had hoped to pull off a funding, Hail Mary, by selling a $222 million bond issue. Obviously, that bond issue failed in the marketplace. Furthermore, 6 million American households are behind on rent. Even after COVID rent abatements expired and many moved on without paying their back rent related to COVID. Additionally, tens of thousands of employees are getting laid off from some of the biggest companies in the world with even more on the horizon. Interest rates have increased at record historical rates with mortgage qualification issues, keeping many from buying their first homes. With few exceptions, most cities are experiencing drops in home prices, which are coupled with drops in commercial rentals due to COVID-inspired hybrid or remote workforces. Home sales in Southern California have already fallen to the lowest level ever recorded. Closed sales in January, which reflect deals signed during the holiday season, fell to under 10,000, 
the lowest number of transactions in records dating back 35 years. And this data came from CoreLogic. The Personal Consumption Expenditure Price Index stubbornly persists due to, in large part, continuing supply chain issues, chronically low investments in raw material sources, including low or no investments in oil and gas exploration, poor agricultural harvests, irritated more by the Russia-Ukraine war. But keep in mind, the higher trending interest rates make the cost of capital higher for any investors, which is an additional damper on new investments. The conference board's senior director of economics is warning that U.S. consumers are planning to do far less spending in the months ahead. Quote, expectations for where jobs, incomes, and business conditions are headed over the next six months all fell sharply in February. Consumers may be showing early signs of pulling back spending in the face of high prices and rising interest rates. Fewer consumers are planning to purchase homes or autos, and they also appear to be scaling back plans to buy major appliances. Vacation intentions also declined in February. I'll end the quote there. Examples of serious supply chain issues and continued high inflation month to month in Europe show we are in reality a part of a continuing global inflation trend. There are many examples, but this one is fairly typical of where we are and where we're headed. Food prices in the UK continue to spiral upward. A measure of UK grocery price inflation soared to a record high this past month. That's more bad news for consumers already facing a shortage of fruit and vegetables, which led to actually rationing in the UK at the major supermarket chains. In the UK, grocery prices rose 17.1% in the four weeks ending February 19th, compared with the same period a year ago. And I'm getting this data from a global consulting firm, Cantor. You can Google Cantor, K-A-N-T-A-R.com. They are a leading data insight and consulting firm. 17.1% is the highest rate of inflation since the data company started tracking it in 2008. And that translates to almost an additional $1,000 a year of the typical UK household's average grocery bill. So we're not talking about nickels and dimes. We are stuck in stagflation. We are not moving to the Federal Reserve target of 2% inflation. Interest rates will stay up and further choke new investments, and as discussed last week, will lower the price-earnings ratio of stocks, resulting in another big leg down in the stock market starting fairly soon, in my judgment. We have a lot of examples of economies and jobs stuck in the mud for decades. Some refer to Japan as a 33-year dead zone. The stock market in Japan reached an all-time high beginning around 1990 and has only managed to recover to about 70-75% of that high since then. So we're at 33-year dead zone and counting. In the United States, from the 2000-2001 dot-com bust, it took 17 years for the stock market indices generally to recover back to the level of 2000. If we go back a little bit further, there was another dead zone in 1966 through 1995. It took 29 years to recover, for the Dow Jones particularly, to recover to the levels of what it was back in the mid-1960s. That's all the way from 1966 to 1995. So stock market declines and bond market declines do not necessarily snap back. And they may take a decade 
or a generation to recover. And I only mention this not to scare anyone, but to tell you we've been there before, other countries have been there before, and this downturn that we are looking at appears to me to have the characteristics of a long-term issue, not a quick snapback. Where will some of the new threats come from that I'm thinking about? Well, first of all, the U.S. dollar is weakening. Why? The U.S. was the first to create interest rate increases. Again, I'm talking about the past six months to a year. That's my, I'm looking at a, a nearer term trend. The U.S. was the first to create interest rate increases, but the U.K. and the European Central Bank have not only caught up, but are increasing their rates higher and faster. Money that flowed into the U.S., short-term money, flowing in to reap the highest short-term return is now flowing elsewhere. Money seeks the highest returns. In the short term and in the long term, we have additional issues. Russia, China, India, and the oil-producing countries in the Middle East are moving more and they're moving quickly to non-dollar trading. As they move more to accept the Russian ruble and the Chinese yuan, and even in some cases gold, additional pressure will be put on the U.S. dollar exchange rates. What have we seen so far? Well, in the past four or five months, the dollar has declined from approximately 114 to 106. That is about a 7% decline, and that is a lot. Importantly, that breaks a trend. We've had a multi-year trend of the dollar increasing from the 90s up to 114 or so, and that trend line looks like a real solid uptrend line until we broke it several months ago. As a result, keep an eye on commodities going forward, not only because of the U.S. dollar weakness, which has an inverse relationship with commodity prices, but because of record low commodity inventories. I'll go into a little bit more detail. Not much, but a little bit more. If you look at a multi-year chart on commodity prices, and you can pick pretty much any commodity index you like, and the U.S. dollar index, you can see it's very clear that when commodities enter a downtrend, it's consistent with the dollar entering an uptrend, and the same works the other way. So I invite you, if you have the interest, to do more research, because this is, in my view, a major determinant of where we're going in the next year or two. Additionally, metal stockpiles are running on empty. Bloomberg has a number of indices on metal stock prices and also the various metal trading groups that you can check. The London Metals Exchange and so forth also do. But we are at a 25-year low. We are lower than we were in the late 1990s on the overall inventories of metals. Nickel, cobalt, lithium, copper. And copper is really an important one to look at. Lead, zinc, metal stockpiles are just about running on empty, as are U.S. oil stockpiles. The stockpiles of oil, no thanks to all the sales from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, are at the lowest level in almost 40 years. Oil prices will be heading back up, and I think they've already continued. China is returning to full production. Russian oil shipments are constrained. We've covered this in prior podcasts. And stockpiles are going to be needed to be replaced during the summer, given there's a shortage of oil and natural gas tanker ships, and so forth. Luckily, Europe had a mild winter. Otherwise, there would have been a lot more pain. Goldman Sachs economist Jeff Curie recently shared an interesting statistic, and this has to do with replacement of fossil fuels. He said that at the end of last year, fossil fuels represented 81% of the world's overall energy consumption. I don't know how many people would guess what it was 10 years ago because of the 
$4 trillion that have been spent on renewables, according to him? Well, 10 years ago, the number was 82%. So in 10 years, we have reduced the world's dependence on fossil fuels from 82% to 81%. In other words, roughly $4 trillion was spent to lower our dependency on oil and gas by 1%. Consider also that 50% of the typical electronic, the EV auto, is made with plastic parts, which as you know comes from oil. And nearly every other component in these cars has ties to oil and gas as well as mining. For example, there's 180 pounds of copper in every electric vehicle, four times as much as a car with an internal combustion engine. There are 200 pounds of graphite in every EV vehicle. There are 145 pounds of nickel, and so it goes. Electricity replacing gasoline at the pump is only one piece. Electric grids are importantly powered by coal. Mining runs on diesel fuel oil. The EV car, as I mentioned, is dependent on oil for plastics and mining for nickel, cobalt, lithium, and more metals. So with these thoughts, I hope that you will remain aware I encourage you to do any of your own research on these areas. They're strategically important to understand and be cautious in your investments. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director Roger Tornadin. This podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.